Hello and welcome once again to the Will Preach for Food podcast. My name is Doug. I'm pastor of Faith Lutheran Church. We are a congregation of the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America. We're based out of Shelton, Washington. Thank you so much for tuning in today. My hope is that over the next 20 minutes or so, you'll learn a thing or two, find some encouragement for the week ahead, and most importantly, that you experience the presence of the God who created you, who loves you, has a purpose for your life. Today's sermon title and topic come from Philippians chapter 3. We're also going to spend some time with the story of the Apostle Paul's conversion in Acts chapter 9. I'll leave you with a few takeaways and tools. And as always, a transcript of this podcast as well as worship and study resources are available at our website, www.faithshelton.org. Before we dive in, take a deep breath and let's pray. God, you have made each one of us and you know us better than we know ourselves. You know our passions, our hopes, our fears. Open our hearts and ears to listen for your word today. We anticipate, we trust that you will give us what we need to hear to direct our passions and realize our hopes and overcome our fears. All to your glory. Come, Holy Spirit. Amen. All right, a reading from Philippians chapter 3, beginning in the middle of verse 4. Philippians chapter 3. Paul writes, If someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his suffering becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do. Forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Here ends the reading. This is the Apostle Paul writing to a congregation he started in a place called Philippi. Now about half of the collection of letters and writings that make up the New Testament of the Bible are attributed to Paul. He's kind of a central voice in the formation and understanding of the Christian faith, second only to the big JC. Now Paul can rub you the wrong way sometimes. Times he sounds like a sexist, pro-slavery Jewish man who lived 2,000 years ago, which he was, or did, lived, that is. Over the centuries, Paul's writings have been wrongly used to justify slavery and patriarchy, but a strong case can be made that Paul was just about as progressive as they come. He advocated radical inclusion of all people, regardless of heritage and gender and economic status. One other fun fact, his given name was actually Saul. 
I don't know why he changed it, but the best explanation I've heard about his name change is that Saul was a very Jewish-sounding name, and the name Paul played better in non-Jewish circles. Fair enough. What we do know about Paul comes from the Bible itself, often from himself. And so here in Philippians chapter 3, verses 4 through 6, Paul tells us that he had been born into a devout Jewish family. He was raised a devout Jew in a devout Jewish community. He went to a Jewish seminary, became a devout Jewish rabbi in the most devout branch of Judaism, the Pharisees. He says he was zealous in his persecution of the opposition. He was meticulous in his own adherence to the rules of the Jewish law. If anyone could claim confidence in the flesh, if anyone had enough brownie points to get into heaven, Paul did. Or at least that's his argument here. But in Philippians 3.7, Paul says that something changed. And that something was when he first saw the light, as they say, when he met Jesus on the road to Damascus. When he went from persecuting Christians to pursuing Christ. And so the book of Acts, chapter 9, records the story of Paul's conversion to Christianity. And here's a clip from that story, verses 1 through 5 of Acts, chapter 9. It says that, Meanwhile, Saul, Paul, was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now, first of all, it's remarkable the description of uh, him breathing out murderous threats. Whether from reputation or from empirical data, Paul here is not a nice person. Second, belonging to the way, that was an early designation for Christians. And third, let me comment on this little dialogue between Paul and Jesus, because I think it's related to some of the language that Paul uses in Philippians. It turns out that there's a single word or root word for the word persecute or vigorously pursue or press on. The Greek word is dioko, to persecute, vigorously pursue or press on. So maybe we can even hear this conversation between Jesus and Saul like this. Jesus says, hey, Saul, why are you pursuing me? Saul asks, well, who's asking? And the response is, I am Jesus. I'm the one you've been pursuing. Continuing uh, through the rest of the chapter, the reason Jesus tells Paul to go into town and wait there, and that's not hard for him to wait because it turns out that this encounter had made Paul blind. He stays in Damascus for three days. Meanwhile, the Holy Spirit visits a local Christian named Anakin Skywalker or something like that. Anyway, so the Spirit tells this Anakin guy not to be afraid of the guy who had just come to town with the express intention of and authority to throw all the Christians into jail. The Holy Spirit explains that, in fact, Paul is God's chosen instrument to proclaim the name of Jesus to all people, Canadians and kings, Jamaicans and Jews. He just doesn't know it yet. So that's the gist of it anyway, and Anakin goes to Paul, gives him the Holy Spirit, returns his eyesight, buys him a meal at the local diner, connects him with the first Christian church in Damascus. No, literally, the first Christian church in Damascus. And that's more or less the story of Paul's conversion. 
A friend of mine wondered out loud recently about the nature of conversion. She was reflecting on the fact that she wasn't sure if she had ever successfully led a person to Christ. I asked her what she thought that looked like. And she said, well, you know, right there in the grocery store line, and the person falls to their knees and accepts Christ as their Savior. We talked about that for a little bit, and I wondered out loud with her that perhaps conversion is more often a long process by which the Holy Spirit uses a village, numerous people, and multiple circumstances to lead a person to a new relationship with God in Christ Jesus. And a closer look at Paul's own conversion suggests that maybe this is the case. Certainly it was with him. We can speculate. Was Paul happy being grumpy all the time? It's no fun uh, breathing murderous threats all day long. Was he happy? What did he think when he would arrest these joyful, kind, hopeful, and tight-knit followers of the way? After all, they were quoting the same Bible as he was quoting. They were reasonable, committed, humble, maybe even funny. He might have even gone to school with some of them. I wonder if in those conversations he began to question his own faith, question whether his cause justified such violent action against these people who, who said that they followed the same God. Now, on the road to Damascus, he did literally see the light. But even that encounter was followed by three days of prayer and fasting, and then the intervention of Ananias, and then the intervention of the Damascus church, and then the intervention of traveling companions, and then the intervention of Barnabas, and then the intervention of the rest of the disciples in Jerusalem. What is the nature of conversion? How does it work? It seems like more often than not, it it takes a village and time. I encouraged my friend not to lose heart. I told her that I suspected that the Holy Spirit had most certainly used her lovely Christ-shaped heart to move countless folk along the journey of conversion. Paul himself would later note, I think it's in 1 Corinthians, that while he planted the seed, it took others like Apollos to water and nurture and finally see the harvest. Or to use a baseball analogy, Sometimes we get to come in at the ninth inning as the closer to earn the save, but it takes a lot of pitches to get there. What I'd like to be able to say as a Christ follower is just put me in, coach. I'm ready to play. All right, well, let's get back to to Paul, to Philippians chapter 3. Now, in verses 7 through 9, he says that none of the religious stuff amounts to a hill of beans compared to the pursuit and experience and practice of gaining Christ, knowing Christ, being found in Christ. If it had been about memorizing Bible verses and perfect Sunday school attendance, Paul would have been set. But instead, his pursuit of pure religion, his pursuit of doing it right, his pursuit of confidence in the flesh had not brought him peace with God, just kind of made him mean, Now, this is not a Jewish thing. It's not even a Pharisee thing. This is a religion thing. Religion, including Christianity and Islam, still has a tendency to kind of make people mean, or at least be perceived as mean. There was a uh, Barna study from 2019. They surveyed Americans about their perception of Christians. Now, the Christians most often describe themselves as things like caring, hopeful, friendly, encouraging, and generous. But the non-Christians, 
They most often described Christians as narrow-minded, homophobic, puritanical, uptight, and invasive. So much for having the same mind as Christ Jesus. So much for letting our light shine before others. Then you add on top of that religious wars that have been going on throughout human history, fighting and killing in the name of God. I cringe as I listen to Christian leaders today breathing murderous threats against perceived enemies of the faith, reposting it on Facebook. Now, don't get me wrong, religion is not bad. It's just like with everything else. Without the Spirit of Jesus, it goes south real quickly. Paul had been breathing murderous intent. And then he saw the light. And then Paul was done with religion and with being right. Paul is now all in on the Jesus thing instead. Jesus is not just a new way for Paul to achieve his old goals. Jesus isn't a kinder, gentler law. Jesus is the righteousness of God himself. Jesus breaks Paul's religion and breaks Paul's heart. Saul, why are you pursuing me? Or who are you? Saul, who are you pursuing? I am Jesus. I'm the one you've been pursuing all your life. No more confidence in the flesh. No more murderous thoughts. Only Jesus. Paul's theology changes, and so does his heart. He's still pursuing, but now he's after something better. In Philippians 3, verses 10 and 11, he says, I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection of the dead. See, I don't think it goes deep enough here to say that following Jesus will subject you to criticism or persecution from others. I don't think that's what he means by participating in his sufferings, though it is often the case. Remember back in chapter 2 of Philippians, Jesus manifests the divinity of God through his willingness to sacrifice his own life for the sake of the world. To be in Christ is to follow him, to emulate him, to learn the same obedience and sacrifice for others that Jesus demonstrated. Love does not insist on its own way, as Paul writes in another of his letters. Our suffering, our brokenness, even our failure proves to the world that it is precisely not about us. It is not confidence in the flesh. It's not about religion, but it's about the mercy of God in Christ Jesus. Now Paul is out to save and build up others instead of arresting and killing them. One more comment on this passage, then we'll get to the takeaways. In verses 12 through 14, Paul comes around full circle. Paul says, look, God wired me to be someone who vigorously pursues my goal, my purpose. My problem was that I was pursuing all the wrong things. But I've got my eyes fixed on Jesus now, and I'm determined to pursue his calling as as his instrument, to press on, to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Paul is all in. No turning back, no more relying on confidence in the flesh, no more hateful pursuit of perceived enemies, no more collecting brownie points, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead. Paul now vigorously pursues the calling to which he was called. No turning back. No turning back. Let me share four takeaways. 
I think the takeaways here are to pursue Jesus, to remember that you are God's chosen instrument too. Remember that conversion takes a village and encouragement to press on and hang in there. First, pursue Jesus. Paul discovered that God's promise in the Bible is fulfilled and accomplished through the faithful sacrifice, death, and resurrection of Jesus. That's the heart of the gospel for you and for me today. Religion can't save us. Brownie points can't save us. But Jesus can and does. Let's spend less time persecuting each other and more time pursuing Jesus. Amen? Amen. Second, you are God's chosen instrument. God made you special and loves you very much. God had a purpose for Paul's life. He was a pursuer. He just needed to learn what was worth pursuing. And God has a purpose for your life too. And it's probably related to how you're wired, what makes you feel strong. When you become a Christian, it doesn't necessarily make you a different person. It just puts you in closer alignment with doing what you were made to do in the first place. Around here, around the church, we call that discovering your spiritual gifts or pursuing your true vocation in life. As one Christian writer says, you find your vocation at the intersection of your greatest passion and the world's greatest need. So folks, get out there and make a difference. You are God's chosen instrument. You have a purpose. Third, remember that conversion takes a village, and it takes time. Each one of us has, has a friend or a loved one who's not living in Christ, who, who doesn't believe in Jesus, hasn't accepted Christ, hasn't been baptized, whatever indicator you want to use. We're worried about them. We worry about their salvation. We worry about um, their life. Folks, I want you to remember that God loves them too. God created them. God loves them. God has a purpose for their life. And so the Spirit of God is continually working the soil, planting seeds, and using people like you and me. It takes a village. Don't lose heart. You don't have to be the closer. Be Ananias. Be Barnabas. Be yourself. Trust the Spirit of God. And wait for the Lord. And finally, press on. That's another way of saying hang in there. The call of God on Paul led him to a life of deep suffering and sorrow. And God's call on your life, I'm sorry folks, it's not a get out of suffering free card. To borrow the favorite phrase of a presidential candidate, here's the deal. <laughs> here's the deal. This is an incredibly difficult season for, for each one of us, our community, for our nation, for our church. Maybe it always is, but 2020, my goodness. God's word today is do not lose heart. Press on to take hold of that for which Christ took hold of you. God's not giving you anything that you and God and the rest of us working together can't overcome. Pursuing Jesus means participation in his suffering, taking up our crosses and following him who is the way, the truth, and the life. Press on, folks. God's got this. We're all in this together. Well, thanks for listening to this week's We'll Preach for Food podcast. For more information about faith, go to our website, www.faithshelton.org. 
if this message has touched your heart and if you need to talk to somebody just about whatever you're pressing through these days or maybe you're worried about the salvation of a friend, don't hesitate to reach out and we'll get together and we'll, we'll pray and we'll, we'll wrestle with it together. You can email me at welcomehome at faithshelton.org. You can also listen to or subscribe to this podcast through Apple Podcasts or any other way you listen to podcasts. Don't forget to like us on Facebook and subscribe to our YouTube channel. Share this message with a friend. Consider making a financial gift to Faith Shelton using the link provided. I want to thank Jana this week for your production help. And thank you, people of faith, for pressing on. Now God bless you and keep you. May God's face shine on you and be gracious to you. May God look upon you with favor and grant you peace. In the name of Jesus, amen.